is in partnership with and co-sponsorship with CBI, Congregation of Beth Israel. Um, and so Rabbi Steve Kahn here, thank you for being with us, Rabbi Kahn, who's also currently the president of the Board of Rabbis. Actually, and uh, Rabbi Kahn's going to share a few words before I introduce Rabbi Kula. Well, thank you, Rabbi Yankowitz and Rabbi Kula. I am so happy to introduce you a second time on uh, Valley Beit Midrash, as you were, you spoke at Congregation Beth Israel a few mm -hmm. years ago when you were here mm -hmm. last. And um, we're really excited for the talk today on Beyond Polarization, Judaism, and our public culture. But I did want to say to all of the VBM fans out there that... Um, it's always very special to welcome Rabbi Kula in, because in 1997, a very, very, or maybe 98, a very young 27, 28 year old rabbi named Steve Kahn uh, worked in a place called Denver. And I was invited to Newport, Rhode Island to participate in one of the most, and I don't say this uh, to be dramatic, one of the most pivotal and meaningful retreats that I've ever attended, which was run by Klal. And um, it was for young rabbis, Orthodox Reform, Conservative and Reconstructionist, um, who they wanted to invite to a beautiful place like Newport, Rhode Island, to talk about not just Torah, but to hear from uh, Yitz Greenberg and, a, and another rabbi named Erwin uh, Kula. And I believe uh, Rabbi Kula spent about nine to 10 hours with us speaking that week. And it was, again, one of the most meaningful learning experiences that I've ever had in my, my 20 some odd years, 26 years in the rabbinate. Um, rabbi Kula was here, as I said, a few years ago. We were very honored to have him both at uh, Beth Israel and also at the Board of Rabbis. Uh, the following day and um, everyone who is here who knows Rabbi Kula knows this and for those of you who don't um, you're in for a real treat. Rabbi Kula is um, one of the most inspirational and um, I, I would say meaning-oriented, meaning-centric um, rabbis who looks not only at what's happening uh, today but really has a, a unique ability to look into the future. Um, and doesn't just predict trends uh, as a disruptive innovator, but um, is really spot on in, in really removing all the narishkeit and getting to the point and, um, and, and helps all of us with, with tremendous perspective and wisdom. And um, mm -hmm. he's really just a great guy. So um, I know Shmuley is going to introduce today's topic, but I did want to give that shout out to Rabbi Kula and so say, much. I'm sitting here 20 some odd years later, um, still inspired by Rabbi Kula and by his work. And it's really an honor for Beth Israel to be part of today. So thank you, Shmuley and uh, Rabbi Kula. Thank you for awesome. giving me the ability to give you a shout out. Thank you, thank you Rabbi Khan. Thank you for You're that. Welcome. And thank you, CBI, for your, for your partnership and the opportunity to work together. And it's our pleasure. Together. Um, and uh, just in terms of the formal bio, uh, for those who are, are not aware of Rabbi Kula's bio, uh, this is just a, a, a brief snippet of it. Rabbi Urban Kula is a disruptive spiritual innovator and rogue thinker, a seventh generation rabbi. He's co-president of Klal, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, making Jewish a public good. A thought leader on religion and human flourishing, Irwin has worked with leaders from the Dalai Lama to create more with organizations, foundations, and businesses in the United States and around the world to inspire people to live with greater passion, purpose, creativity, and compassion. He's the author of the award-winning book, 
Yearnings, Embracing the Sacred Messiness of Life, and the co-founder of the Disruptor Foundation, whose mission is to encourage the application of disruptive innovation theory in societal critical domains. Uh, friends, our plan today with Rabbi Kula um, is, the, is, is to end at two and to open with a presentation and then have the chance for some engagement. You can always chat in the side and we'll have the chance for um, some questions after his presentation as well. And we are, this really fits in so well with BBM, especially given that there's a lot happening in the country at the moment. The idea that we must be engaged in the world, in society. We must advocate. We must be passionate for causes. We want people to bring those passions and convictions into our learning space. We don't ask people, we don't say, don't bring your commitments. We want to bracket that, silence that, bring it, bring it in. We want people to bring their passions, their convictions, their commitments in. And how do we live with the question of holding our community together, holding our country together, you know, cultivating a compassionate uh, family, community, country together? How do we approach this moment beyond polarization? So Rabbi Kula, thank you for joining us. Wow. I'll pass it over to you. Okay, wow. Um, thank you on all levels. I mean, um, just I'm a little bit raw right now because a, uh, I don't mean to dump this on, on you, but 15 minutes ago I heard a, a friend of mine just passed away. So I'm a little raw and, and he was a mentor and teacher and from sort of outside the Jewish world. Uh, so I'm like dealing with that. And then I look out and I see, you know, I see Barbara Mark and I, I know the Mark family, I mean, that, that family, they all grew up together, all those kids in, in my family. And then I, and then, and then Rabbi Khan, that's crazy. I mean, I remember that retreat perfectly because it was a gorgeous place. And, and then I have followed you and, you know, in your career and here you are like all these years later and, and I'm, I'm so moved. And then, and, and Shmuley, who I consider one of the, and I've considered him for a long time. I, I say it publicly, so I'm not saying anything that is one of the superstars in, in American religion, not just American Jewish life, but in American religion. And it's really hard to be that these days. Um, um, so I'm very honored to be here. So here's what I want to do. I, I want to like put out, a, I, want to, I want to try in 15 minutes, 20 minutes to put out a little take, study a text, and then really open it up. Um, and I'll, it's like, we're gonna, I'm going to do this rushed so that we can open it up, but feel free to chat, put any questions in the chat, we'll, we'll monitor it. Um, and if you want to break in, because there's something that you just have, just, you know, there's a way to, to just uh, put a handshake, put a, put a finger, do something, raise your hand, react, whatever. So here's the, here's, the, there's nothing that you don't know about what's going on in terms of polarization in the world, okay? Right, anybody feel like we're all in it together really? Does it feel like we're all in it together, right? And by the way, I don't care if that's Jews, right? We're all in it together, right? We know how to have conversations. We are like, we're, we're you know, 25 years ago, like when, when Rabbi Khan and I, this is Shmuley's too young for this, when Rabbi Khan, 26 years ago, we had the great saying in American Jewish life, we are one, right? No one would pretend to say we are one today. And that's the same in America too. The polarization we know, in fact, there's a stacking, what's called stacking and sorting. Um, you can give a person's uh, stacking and sorting, the sociological term for, you can, oh my God, Tomer, Rothschild. Is that the same Tomer? Holy crow. Wow. This, it, it's um, stacking and sorting. What stacking and sorting is, is you tell me your zip code, I'll tell you 
right? 50 things about you. You tell me what television show you watch, whether you go to church synagogue or not on a regular basis, where you shop, right? What movies you watch, what movies you stream, what TV shows you stream. There's a stacking and sorting of identity. There's a lot of reasons for why that's happened. Right. One of the important suggestions is, as we, besides media, besides social media, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is as there have been um, as webs of relationships, the many different identities we have have weakened for a variety of reasons. We have now what's called a mega identity. Our political identity has become mega, mega, like it's big. It's overwhelmed all of our other identities. Okay, and that is both a prescription for and a consequence of polarization. And so we have cultural polarization, we have political polarization, we have religious polarization, we have um, in every area, in every policy, right? In fact, the polarization is so serious now that we have studies that if you give a person the exact same policy paper, right, and it says Democrat. Democrats will agree with it and Republicans will not. You give the exact same paper to the exact same people and you change it and say it's a Republican paper and people will reverse their opinions. In other words, it has nothing to do anymore with the content of anything. It's the tribal identity, the belonging to the group that trumps, no pun implied, everything else. Okay? And so... I think I don't. I want. I don't want to spend more time proving that. Just you can Google sor- sorting. You can Google clustering of identity. You can you can Google stacking. Sure, uh, yeah, but uh, I but you, uh, have. But you feel it, right? You can feel that. Does anybody not feel that we're a touch polarized in the country and in Jewish life? Okay. Second point is why that polarization. What what our role? I have a presumption regarding that polarization right, happens for really legitimate and understandable reasons. And that is the problems get so complex, and we are living in what's called the Santa Fe Institute, in fact, in New Mexico, says we're having the first complexity crisis in the history of the human experience. What's a complexity crisis? A complexity crisis is not wow, it's really problematic to, to, to figure out the homelessness problem, or it's really problematic to figure out how to create a, a nuclear deal. You know, it's no, every single system is interrelated now for a whole host of reasons. And the complexity of all the systems interacting, when you have a problem here, it's actually 500 other problems too. And you can kind of feel that, right? If you try to solve over here, like COVID and we're watching COVID, COVID isn't, it's not just a virus problem. It's not just a medical problem. It's not just a health problem. It's a homelessness problem. It's a racial problem. It's an ethnic problem. It's a medicine problem. It's a political problem. It's a, it's on, it's a cultural problem. It's all of it. It's a, it's a uh, capitalist problem, but I don't mean capitalism's the problem there, but it's a, a, it's a policy problem. It's like on so many levels that you can't even get at it. And therefore, what happens in moments of great complexity and uncertainty, by the way, the term in the literature is wicked problems, okay? Not a regular problem, but a wicked problem. That means it cannot be solved from the existing level of consciousness 
and cannot be solved in the existing way in which things are broken apart or fancy word parsed, right? It just can't be. You can't solve it by slicing away a piece of the problem saying, we'll just solve this because the second you try to solve this, there are so many unintended consequences and so many variables. Think of playing like 50 level dimension chess. And so what happens, and this is the first, again, Santa Fe Institute, they're the experts in the world in complexity theory, right? The Santa Fe Institute, this is the first complexity crisis human beings have ever had, okay? That's the second point. Third, in those moments of profound uncertainty, the natural, completely understandable, predisposition that we all do, no matter what we think, we all do it, okay? We either flee, it's fight or flight, we actually leave and walk away and, 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 and watch TV all day, right? And go insular to simply avoid the conflict because cognitive dissonance, right, will always create a level of stress and tiredness that literally, as a defense mechanism, we will walk away, right, from the conflict, right? By the way, that's the majority of Americans. That's the Americans called, that's what it's called in the, in the literature, the exhausted majority. Got it? Isn't that interesting? There's actually a term, the exhausted majority. That's to be distinguished from activists, okay? And activists always, right, are part of the polarization. They always are a minority. Doesn't matter, I'm not talking about now who's right, who's wrong. I'm giving you sort of how the landscape feel of it. And they are always have something else in common, right? They are certain, okay? So withdrawal is one way to deal with the complexity and cognitive dissonance and the uncertainty. The other way is to be incredibly certain and advocate in a variety of different ways from that place of certainty, okay? That's the, now, I wanna suggest that, and now I'm gonna do this, that I wanna suggest that we all, not just political leadership, not just corporate leadership, not just religion, every single person in a system, right? If you actually are in, you're in the system by definition, Every single person in the system contributes in some way to the way the system is unfolding. It's working for the exhausted majority person it's working because they just can watch TV all day or they could just take care of their family or they could just do their job without getting involved. And that actually suits who they are. It'd be very uncomfortable if they had to actually engage in the conflict. Right? It, it, People on the extremes, the most passionate advocates, and extreme here does not mean bad, the most passionate advocates, they're getting exactly what they want in the system. In fact, if the problem got solved tomorrow, they would wake up in the morning and literally not know who they are, okay? In other words, all of us in a system, and America is a system, all the way to our organizations are a system, our families are a system, uh, Arizona's, these are all systems nestled in, nested in other systems, right? The bigger the system, the more abstract the way in which we fight. But the smaller the system, right? It's still the same, it's still a system. Everyone 
is getting exactly what they need, including the people who hate what's happening. Because it turns out they are, they self-identify when they look in the mirror, they self-identify as people in opposition. So if they actually had to be in favor of something, they wouldn't know who they are, right? If they actually had to tend to someone as opposed to advocate for something, they literally, it doesn't fit who they are now. And sometimes in a very highly com complexity crisis, in a complexity crisis, where you have all these different reactions, the only way out of it is for everybody to change who they are in the drama. Not to double down on who they are in the drama, the drama of the polarization, but to change who they are. And that's very, very hard because there is no possibility of change without loss. No one's, by the way, people aren't afraid of change. If I said, I'm gonna give each of you a million dollars now and it'll change your life, everybody say, okay, I can deal with that. That's a change I think I can handle. By the way, whether we can or can't is a separate issue. But it's not change that's the problem, right? It's loss that's very difficult to manage, okay? The problem is managing loss. And when we have to change, it could be change in a view. It could be change in a, there's a lot of different ways when we have to change. No matter what, there is loss. How we can all be in, and that's every Jew in the Jewish community, in the body politic, and that's in all the different body politics, the national community, the local community, the local synagogue, et cetera, where the polarization is all the way up and all the way down, unless it's sorted, right? That's one of the things that's happened in religious life. You show me liberal Jewish community and I'll tell you basically what they think on every single issue. You go to a traditional, you go to a, a more traditional community, by the way, same in Christianity. Liberal, Christian, liberal Christians stack up on all the same, on the same issues, right? Right, that's, in other words, they feel the same way about environment, about guns, about, about uh, systemic racism. They feel the same way about feminine, they feel the same way about every single issue, okay? That's why people who misfit, who don't fit the existing labels, become the most important bridge characters, but they also have to shift. They also have to change because bridge characters, like me, I'm a bridge character. I can speak in multiple communities, whatever their language is, right? But what I have to be careful about is the polarization actually works fantastic for me. I have more business, I have more work, and because I feed off the methods to re resolve polarization, I always feel smarter, feel, feel higher status, which means I wind up not growing, right? And become part of what we all do in a system is enable, right, the reality out there. Now, I take a break for a second. Okay, let's see, there's some chats here. I'll take a break. Uh, let's see, just quick, uh, okay. Okay. Yes, complexity theory. In a complex system, we do not know, this is very, very important, that's the uncertainty. Whoever Felix Solomon has just said something very important, okay? In a complex system, we do not emphasize, not know all of the elements, factors, and dynamics. The most important thing I'm, I'm adding from is emergence. Emergence is the term used for sudden appearances of unpredictable. In other words, it's not, and that's of course part of the uncertainty. If I get people in a room who have to talk across boundaries and across borders and, and start with, we don't know what the solution is, it's very scary because what if the solution emerges that either I actually can't implement or it's a solution that's going to cost me some sort of sacrifice 
It could be money, it could be status, it could be name, it could be reputation, it could be job, okay? That's, and that's, this is the difference between something that's just complicated, okay, and something that's complex, okay? Now, I want to invite us to a little bit of a Jewish method that I think we can begin to contribute, not out there into the world yet, because the world's not the problem. It's every single conversation we have. It's every t in inner conversation. I watch TV and I put on TV and I disagree and I, and I have the inner conversation that the fancy word is reifies, concretizes, stabilizes more fully my existing psychological and political predisposition. You understand? And by the way, we now know that it doesn't matter what you watch. So let's say you're a really smart person and you're really open and you're a, you're a Rachel Maddow fan, but you're really open, so you watch Fox. It turns out what we know from the psychological studies is you watch Fox and you become more attached to your Rachel Maddow position. Let's say you're a Fox person and you're actually, you know, but you, but you like to taste, at least look at the other side. If you look at the other side, right, Here's the initial reflex. You will actually be hardened in your existing position, right? So, and that, these, by the way, this is all Daniel Kahneman stuff on bias and Cass Sunstein. I can give you all these, all the, all the stuff on, um, on um, all the, the footnotes on this. Now, that means to be able to get ourselves out of a polarized takes incredible, incredible discipline and sort of mind-heart control. Incredible what, what Buddhists might call discernment, what Jews might call da'at, a kind of deep knowing wisdom, right? Of two sides. One, your own psychological and psycho-spiritual and psychocultural state, yet alone the others. And this is the last point before we study. There is no possibility for something you read or someone you hear right, to create tremendous excitation or affect within you, it's not possible um, because unless it is triggering, now you don't know what it's triggering, it's either triggering something that you have disassociated from, right, or something you deeply want but unconsciously have denied yourself, okay? And the best examples of this is almost all of the liberal, the liberal conservative divides on issues about freedom and equality and fairness. And, and it's the, almost everything happening in Jewish life regarding Israel and Palestinians is that way. And what happens in these moments is very often the liberal side of things will disassociate and by the way, Jonathan Haidt is probably the best person on this, will disassociate the feelings of aggression, the feelings of fear against the other, and will be the quotation mark, kinder, more compassionate. They get to own that part, and they get to project and disassociate and allow the other side to be the container of all the aggression, right? Of all the people who go out and fight the fights right, against the really evil people. Uh, so there's these, there's these ways in which we disassociate and project and allow the other side to be the container on whatever the issues are, okay? 
All right. Now I want to I want to I want to do it. I want to do two texts. It'll take five minutes, and then we're going to um, and then we're going to uh, talk about this. Okay. Do you, do you, do we have the text? So, do you have the text? Do you have the text? Okay. Excellent. Okay. I have the text also. So I want you. I want to do first the. I think it's the third text. Okay. And it's going to be very quick because I only want to make one point here. Um, okay, so if you look at text number three, this is a text all of you know. Okay, I'm going to read it very, very quickly. And then I'm going to read four, and then I'm going to read two. Okay, every and this is on the basis of everything that I just said. And so this, you know this, every dispute, which is the sake of heaven in the end, will be permanently established. There the text is clearly saying, right, that there are some conflicts that will, what, never go away, right? There are some conflicts that are enduring conflicts. For our purposes, we could call those conflicts conflicts in which we are weighing different legitimate values, okay? Some of us really value authority, right, as a, a way of order, and some of us really value rebellion and, and, and nonconformity. And those are not it's not that one is good and one is bad when they get disassociated and one becomes the container of all of the issues of authority or all of the issues of transgression, then that's a problem. But these are disputes that will always be. We have been arguing about science and religion, about reason and emotion. We have been arguing about that since the beginning. We have been arguing about justice and fairness right? For a long, long time. We have been arguing of equality of outcome and equality of opportunity, right? For those different forms of equality for a very long time. We have been arguing about compassion or justice, these sorts of what we call in the language dualities. We have been, when it gets to a duality level, when it gets to a deep value level, right? Those arguments will appear over and over again at different places in the spiral, okay? So every dispute which is sake of heaven in the end will be permanently established. And every dispute which is not for the sake of heaven in the end will not be permanently established. You'll resolve it and move on. What's an example of a dispute for the sake of heaven? The dispute between the house of Hillel and house of Shammai. Okay, we're going to do one of those in a second. What's the example of dispute not for the sake of heaven? Korach and his band. All we need to know there, right? Korach rebels. The rabbis, forget about in the text whether this is true or not. The rabbis see that as, as, as a ill-motivated, right, dispute on Korach's part, okay? That's all that matters. Asking about your motivation when you are in a dispute becomes a central way to understand whether it's for the sake of heaven or not, right? Understanding one's, and how hard is it to understand our motivations? Yeah, well, of course, Freud has said this is too muchness to the psyche. It is not possible to understand all your motivations. In fact, if you're a religious, quotation marks, if you're a religious person, there's only one entity in creation that knows your heart, that knows your uh, uh, innermost thoughts, yodea mach shavot, yodea nistarot, that knows your, the secrets of your heart. There's only one entity, and that's God. Now, I'm not saying there is a God. I'm not saying there's not a God, but it was, it's so impossible to know oneself. Either we imagined or there is, I don't care which one you believe, right? We had to imagine or there is, 
an entity that would know us perfectly, by the way, and still what? This is Yom Kippur. This is, this is a bonus insight. On Yom Kippur, right? We're known completely. And at the end of Yom Kippur, we're still what? Even when we're known completely, even when we're really known completely, what happens? We're what? We're still loved. We're still loved and forgiven. By the way, that's the radical piece of Yom Kippur. Imagine what it means to look at your motivation when you're arguing with someone with whom you deeply disagree. How often is the motivation, right, to actually, is it pure enough? Are you so aware that it's about solving the problem? Or is there 20%, 15% of the arguing that flows from less noble motives. Right, that's, and that's just on the little bit of motivation. Now, let's go to number four. And here it happens to be, here's a, a, uh, a commentary on that about what a, what a machloket, right? By the way, machloket comes from chelek, splitting apart, right? That, that's a way of saying all arguments between human beings are fundamentally because people can't hear the partial truth of the other side, right? By the way, partial doesn't mean 50-50. It could be 1%, right? right? But a 1% truth on the other side that's dissed or dishonored or dismissed metathesizes. And then 1% becomes 2% and 2% becomes 3%, right? What truths, by the way, it may not be a factual truth, this is why, this is where, this is where, when we hear of alternative facts, right, there are alternative facts. I mean, she's not, she, she didn't understand what she was saying there. There are alternative facts. It just turns out there are different kinds of facts. There are emotional facts. There are psychological facts. There are physical facts, right? There are physical facts that have to do with data. Here's a physical fact. 226,000 people have died from COVID. Here's a physical fact, right? Masks will, and now whatever the medical data is, masks will reduce the capacity, but X percentage. That's just a fact. But there's a psychological fact that's also true. People perceive themselves being coerced. And if people perceive themselves being coerced, those people who want the fact that a mask will actually make a difference to be used will have to deal with that fact also, because it's another fact. And that's very hard to deal, to make the translation between physical facts in the external world and people's interior emotional psychological facts of their life is one of the most difficult translations, difficult conversations to have. So number four, what's a machloket that's for the sake of heaven? For in this world, every machloket, no matter what it is, the evil inclination tempts the person and says that it's for the sake of heaven, of course. It, does anybody ever get into an argument that doesn't think that's, that they're right and noble? And of course, it's for the larger purposes. I mean, this is such a smart text about who we are, right? There's no, it's not possible not to have self-interest in the argument. There's no such thing as that from the human perspective, right? Everyone says, of course, it's for the sake. I'm sorry, it's to subdue people who are wrong. They're traitors, they're heretics. 
right? They're trying to destroy the country. They're taking the soul of the country. That's how we talk. That's how we are as human beings. The rule of the matter is there's no machloket that does not have within it a little bit of the evil inclination who's tempting the person and saying that the whole intention, my whole intention is for the sake of heaven. I am so right. And God forbid to say on a particular machloket uh, disagreement that it's not for the sake of heaven. Well, if that's the case, how can a person know whether the truth is, where, where the truth is? Am I really arguing for the sake of heaven? Now with this, a person could know. If the divided ones and the parties in conflict, other than regarding the matter of which they are disagreeing and opposing one another, are truly lovers in their heart and soul, this is a sign that their machloket is for the sake of heaven. However, if they are enemies, if they are enemies and are holding on to hatred for one another through their machloket, this is not for the sake of heaven. Now, what's interesting here is it has nothing to do with the content of the machloket. That's the radical part. We don't even need to read the rest of that text. The radical insight here, and it's psychologically so true, and politically, from a psychopolitical, so true, that it turns out, independent of the content that one is arguing in the debate, the content could be 100% correct. But if the motivation, if the psychological wrapping, if the psycho-spiritual wrapping of the, of the argument is in hate, in, is a dissing, is in a diminishing, is at, of the person in any way, it doesn't matter that the content of the argument is good. It will not result, right, in anything positive. Now we have Hillel and Shammai and Korach. Now, I want to go back to the number, and then I'll be done. We'll have 20 minutes, right? I want to go back to text number two and show you something, okay? Skip down to where... Um, skip down to where it says that... Uh, well, let's go from the top. Rabacha Barchanina said, you see where I am? Number two? Rabbi Acha Barchanina said, it's revealed and known before God that the world came, before the world came into existence, that the smartest person that ever lived, there was no one that ever equaled to him in, in the rabbi, and it was Rabbi Meir. By the way, Meir means enlightened. So this is a meditation on what it means to be enlightened Jewishly. Okay, Rabbi Meir is the enlightened one. That's the, if we were reading, reading his name in English. If he was so enlightened, why was not the law, why was not the policy fixed in agreement with his views? Why? Because his colleagues could not fathom the depths of his mind. What does it mean not to be able to, what does it mean to be enlightened and not be able to, what's the depths of mind? He would declare the ritually unclean to be clean and supply proof that was plausible and the ritually clean to be unclean and supply proof that was plausible. Okay? This is a very, very deep understanding of what it means to be enlightened, which is why we don't generally teach mysticism to people who do not have strong ethics. Because from a mystical perspective, all is one. But it turns out all is one is very nice if you have very, very high ethical standards, okay? Otherwise, ethics dissolves in the mystical moment. And so Rabbi Meir is enlightened, and he understands. He could make an argument for kosher treif and treif kosher. He could make pure, impure, impure, pure. Because if you're wise enough and smart enough, you know the entire drama of being human is a language game and an ongoing construction. One and now we can skip the next one because people say, "Oh, he had it, his name wasn't enlightened. His name his name was Rabbi Clarity, right? His name was Rabbi Brightness." Okay, and and now go to Rabbi Abahu. You see that three lines down. What does it mean? Rabbi Meir had a disciple Simicus 
who for every rule concerning ritual uncleanness, he supplied 48 reasons in support of its uncleanness. And for every rule supporting ritual cleanness, he could do 48 reasons. Once you're playing that game, it means if you're smart enough on every single issue, you can prove the opposite. By the way, this is well before um, people like Foucault, well before Derrida, well before Lyotard, that, that recognized that every single thing is contextual, right? There is no essential truth from the human perspective. There is from God's perspective, not from human perspective. Because I can give 48 reasons, in fact, right? One of the ways in which you can, the only, one of the ways you get on the Klaus faculty is you have to argue a position you most deeply disagree, Klaus meaning my organization, you have to argue a position you most deeply disagree with in front of the faculty of Klaus. Think about what happens there. Now, Rabbi Abba, Rabbi Abba said in the name of Samuel, for three years there was a dispute between Beit Shammai and Behil. This is a very famous text, but it's the end that I want to teach a little differently. The halachas in agreement with our views, and let us say the halachas in agreement with our views. And then God's voice came out saying, hey, listen, right? The both are the words of the living God. In other words, from God's perspective, both are what? They're both correct. They're both right from God's perspective. Because from God's perspective, God can contain yes and no, up and down, heaven and earth, tahor tameh, permitted, not permitted, treif kosher. From God's perspective, okay, it is all one, right? It is infinite in the containing capacity, from a, this from a theological perspective, right? But the halacha happens to be in agreement with rulings of Beit Hillel, right? So the, the Gemara asks, if both of the words of the living God, I'm sure you've heard this text, why Beit Hillel? Now here's the thing, right? We get a definition of what it means to be modest, right? Modest, we think modest is a very, very nice thing. It's very, very difficult to be modest, right? It's ferociously difficult to be modest, right? In fact, the people who claim to be the most modest very often are the most arrogant, but it's a passive aggressive way of saying it, right? So there, it's very, very difficult to be modest, especially if you think you're right. And given that we all think we're right, especially when we're arguing with certainty, we're arguing passion, right? But of course, remember what I said earlier, the more, the louder you yell and the more passionate you are certain, not the more passionately in which you argue, but the more passionately in which you're certain, the more uncertain you actually are. Because your certainty is a masking of the deep discomfort of being uncertain. So what does Beit Shammai do? He would because they were kindly, what did they do? They studied their own rulings and those of Beit Shammah. In fact, they were so humble, they were so ferociously committed to being in the game together that they taught the opinions of Beit Shammah before theirs. Now, that's not about being nice. What's the epistemological or the knowledge, what's the intellectual um, reason that it makes sense to take Hillel's policy if Hillel teaches Shammai's policy first. Why is that? And now we can open it up. Why is that a logical thing to do? Not a nice thing. Forget about nice. It's not about being nice. Kind and humble here doesn't mean nice. Kind and humble means a ferocious commitment to the truth and that we're all in this together. Why does that make sense that it would be according to Hillel? Somebody want to, you can like, go 
Don't be afraid. You can't. Don't worry. I, I make it right even if you get it wrong. Well, what happens? Have you ever been in a situation where you're really, really certain about your view? And then you read the best of the other side, not the worst of the other side, but the best of the other side. Doesn't sometimes it happens, you say, hmm, yikes, I never thought of that. Or, wow, I, hmm, it's, a, it's a touch more complicated than I thought. And then all of a sudden, I have to upgrade and include something in my view that I either didn't see or I had excluded. So what happens to your view relative to the problem your view is trying to address. It's upgraded. So it turns out that method is the best method to get at complex or problems that, problems that we wind up fighting about. I think in these texts, there's a real contribution we could make first in all of our different sorts of uh, uh, settings on where we could actually uh, make a contribution regarding polarization, right? The first insight here is, what is our motivation in these fights? And every time we say our motivation is uh, patriotism and love for the country, that's what the right loves to say, right? The left loves to say justice, I'm for justice, right? By the way, every time you have an abstract word that people advocate, know that the abstract word is hiding stuff as much as just revealing stuff, right? Because we're actually arguing about what justice means. We're actually arguing about what patriotism means. So when you use abstract words like that, justice, freedom, equality, these big words, right, as a uh, way of arguing your point, it is hiding as much as it's revealing. Rabbi, you could add fairness to that as well. Fairness, right? yeah, right. I'm sure you can, we all know what ones we use right? And, and those are abstractions. And the reason we abstract from a psychological and political position, the reason we abstract is because the closer you get to the human being, the more painful it is to see what you're missing. So the abstraction allows us to go justice, but not, but not ask about, hmm, where might I be unjust, right? The abstraction filters as much as it reveals, okay? And that's just how abstractions work. So first is motivation. Do you imagine if, I'm not asking Trump to do this. I'm asking us to do it. The exhausted majority and the wise advocates, okay? Which is the majority of the country. About 70% of the country according to Pew and, and Gallup, right? And this uh, organization called Beyond Conflict, which you may have heard, about 70% of the country agrees on all the major polarized issues. They agree on gun control. They may not agree on the fifth, sixth, seventh policy, but on the first three policies on gun control. They agree on carbon credits. They, agree, they may not agree on the Green New Deal, but they agree on four or five initial things, right? They they agree on, on, on a whole, they agree on government healthcare, on healthcare that, right? They may not agree on exactly how, but they agree everybody should have healthcare. On every major, go to the, you'll go, the best thing to do is just beyond conflict. But it, but it turns out, it turns out that we actually agree, but we don't have the, the psychological or the psycho-spiritual capacity 
to argue in a way off of our what we actually do agree upon. And that's because the, the tribe and, and the tribal identity and belonging. Okay. So motivation. Self-critique before critique of the other, right? Hillel teaches Shammai first. That's self-critique when you teach the other first, right? Not comparing. He's teaching Shammai. I'm sure there were people that taught worse versions of Shammai, but he's teaching Shammai. How often do we compare our best view to someone else's worst view, right? If we're liberal, right, we don't compare to a Jonah Goldberg or to a Yuval Levin or to Yoram Hazoni or to, right, and, and I left of center. We don't compare to, to a David French, right? You know, we compare it to Rush Limbaugh. Well, it turns out when you compare your best to someone else's worst, you always win. It's very convenient, right? Compare your best to someone else's best. Read the very best of the other side, not Fox or not MSNBC, but the very best of the other side. And it's a very startling, startling experience, okay? Beware of the generalizations, right? Right? All the right, there aren't, there's no, Trump is a metaphor. I mean, he's a real person, but he's a metaphor. There aren't 60 million Trumpists, just like there aren't 63 million Hillary people. And whatever this election is, right? There are thousands, first of all, there's a million and millions of individuals. That's the first thing, each of which is an image of God, right? But there are a lot of different people making a lot of different, a lot of decisions that look like the same for a lot of different reasons. And so the less abstract, not only in the terms, justice, fairness, et cetera, but the less abstract in the way in which we look at them, us, there's no them. There's a lot of thems. And there's no us. There's a lot of uses. There's a lot of uses, right? And in a moment of great uncertainty, one of the ways we get certainty is we hold on. Okay, I'm going to stop. And now let's, so I see Frank, I see Hannah. Uh, I'm sure there's other people too. Rabbi, Rabbi Khan wanted to throw in. And Rabbi Khan. Okay. So can we go Frank, Hannah, and Rabbi Khan, and then the next round? Is that all right? So thank you. So Earl, thank you for your talk. It's uh, like drinking from a fire hose. Um, <laughs> the, uh, early, in the, early in your talk, you were saying, oh, this is a new phenomenon, uh, the complexities all coming together. And um, as you said that, the thought occurred to me, the Spanish flu occurred almost 100 years ago. And for the people at that time, it had a feel just as complex, interrelated with politics and healthcare and all of that. So why is this a new phenomenon? Yeah, so I mean, look, it, 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 I always say this, I'll do it fast. It's like when Adam and Eve were leaving the garden, everybody thinks we're leaving, everybody thinks their moment is the moment of transformation. When Adam and Eve were leaving the Garden of Eden, you know, Adam turned to Eden, Eve and said, honey, we're living through a moment of transformation. So everybody feels that. But then there also is, it is also is true, we are more interconnected, right? So we are, and the interconnections, the webs of relationships, you know, at the same time that, you know, that's the, that, <clears throat> the financial crisis showed that. Right. It, in, in the early 1900s, if a company goes under, the world doesn't go under. OK, so that's complexity. Complexity just means there's so many intersections. There's more intersections than ever before. And you couldn't even manage them if you tried, which means everything becomes emergent. 
And that is a difference in 100 years. And then I have a, a personal question you may choose not to answer. Okay. But yeah, given, given all of what you've just said and your understanding of what the other side feels and looks like, do you ever get angry? Yeah, of course I get angry, but I'm very, very careful. One, not to try, try not to do it in public. And then I always use my own anger when that happens. First of all, I'm, I'm pretty aware at this moment, you know, at this sure. level 62, having done this sort of way of thinking about and working this through over the last decade or so, that when I get angry, I immediately know that there's something that I have disassociated, right, about the other side. And I'm very, very, very quick on that. So if I get angry at, at, at uh, all of this patriotism stuff, if I get angry, it's because I know deep down, deep, 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 deep down that there are sacrifices for this country that either I would not be prepared to make or don't make, and I have a combination of envy and jealousy to be able to do that, and, a, and I have less devotion. And that would be an example. And now owning it, because no one can be everything. All you can be is who you can be and then move it sure. incrementally, right? It's then that I have to be less angry with someone who's holding a flag and recognize, wow, what are they disassociating and how much of my inability to use the language of patriotism right, in a way that they can hear, winds up them having metastasized version of patriotism. Because it doesn't mean that I don't engage, but I engage from a different psychological space, right? I don't engage from that space that blocks what I need to grow from. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Hannah, and then, and then Rabbi Khan. So my question is, how do you then sort of move beyond and communicate with people that are supporting, supporting um, some really, really awful policies, like putting kids in cages right. on, the, so, you know, on the border. Yeah. And, so, and this, disenfranchising this, people from voting, right. taking away health care. How do you support somebody? I'm not even talking about supporting Trump. But yeah, yeah. But policies that support right. that. So, so this has to be worked on two levels. One, there, it's like the, everybody heard the myth, Joseph Campbell myth of the dragon, right? right? The, dra the hero goes out, right? And he has to slay the dragon and then he comes home. But what does he realize after he slays the dragon in every one of these myths? That the dragon exists where? Not outside, the dragon's inside, okay? So there's two levels of this. Sometimes you do have to slay the dragon because if you don't slay the dragon, it will actually kill you. Right? But then you also have to remember that the dragon is your projection. Okay? Holding those two things together, that sometimes you really do have to defeat the other side, right? sometimes you have to kill the other side. Okay? But you also have to know while you're doing that, that you are not killing the idea and the, and the, and the drama behind the policy. Right? The drama behind the policy the fear that generates that policy, the anxiousness that generates that policy, the resentment that generates that policy, the grievance that generates that policy, the psychological dissonance, the discontent that generates that policy, all the stuff that generates policies that are distorted by their side or our side, right? Those, that ground needs to be addressed even if you kill the policy, right? So in other words, we could kill every Nazi in the world, which I hope we do, right? And that will not eliminate what we call Nazism. 
Okay? We can eliminate everything. We can win on every policy having with immigrants. That will not change that it's very, 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 very scary to love the stranger. Okay. And holding those two things together and knowing who you are in the drama and what your side is about. So sometimes you have to win. You have to advocate to win a position. But how you win, the day after you win, what have you missed in winning? I would say a lot of liberals and progressives have missed in this particular debate, not what Trump said that, 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 that liberals invented cages, okay? But the truth is a very painful truth. When our side did some things that were a little funky, when we put children not separated from their parents, we didn't do that, Obama never did that, but when children came across and they had to be to, for their protection, put in spaces that we didn't call cages then, but were cages, we didn't freak out. Now, that we didn't freak out then is very, very important to ask as one is fighting then, because one recognizes that we are not as different from them as we imagine. We are all in this together. All of us have to learn how to love the stranger better. All of us have to learn how to love that which is strange in us better. Now, that doesn't mean you don't win the debate because it may be that you see greater pain for whatever reason. But the day after win, how you win and the day after winning may make all the difference in the world. And I know that's hard. This is the psychological, intellectual next level that the human community has to reach. This is what pluralism is. And there's religious ways to understand this. If every single human being is an image of God, can't bullshit that when we say that. That's not some like little poetic drama of like, oh, we're all the image of God. Isn't that nice? That's not, that's not, that, is a, that is a forever aspiring thing to create the political, economic, and social psychological conditions for every single human being on the planet to experience themselves as an image of God. That is a forever job. And the second you think you have the policy that ensures that, you're a dangerous person, even if you're right. But, you know, the, one of the thoughts that comes to mind is that none of us are perfect, and we all have to work on things along the way. Beautiful. And they're not going to happen Beautiful. overnight. Keep going. However, there are certain places like um, not speaking out. It's like the priest in, in Europe it. said, I got you it. know, then they'll come after me after all of right. the people are gone, the right. communists, the Jews, and all of that. Yep. And not speaking out right. is, in my opinion, even more evil I got than it. perpetrating the evil. That's why I'm saying I'm holding both together. I, you never heard me say not speak out. You, I was very careful regarding even passion, right? One should be a passionate advocate for what one sees and perceives as injustice and, and real, and, right, given that all the passion doesn't seem to be working so much right now, right? 
We've seen those people most concerned about a lot of stuff seems to be, by the way, on all sides. It's going backwards. If you're a conservative, you look at the country and say, oh my God, I am losing this country. And if you are a progressive today, you look out into the country and say, oh my God, I am losing this country. When opposite sides feel the same way, that is an indication that they are disassociating and missing very, 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 very important truths about themselves and the other. And those people who can discover those in the midst of the fight, right, will be able to be Hillel, not Shammai. And in the end, right, Hillel, the policy does go to Hillel. That would be, the, the version of that is Martin Luther King saying the arc, right, the arc of justice is, you know, long, but it bends towards justice, right? That's, that's, that's Hillel. And by the way, that doesn't mean you don't need Malcolm X. It's just you have to know who you are on the drama. That's the most important thing. Who are you in the drama, right? There's no, there's, I had this amazing conversation, I can't, it doesn't matter, with a really rabid, rabid, lunatic, nut anti-Semite. I had this conversation with about, uh, I'll only tell you that he's a very, very, he was one of the great rock and rollers in the history of rock and roll. But he's, he is insane, okay? But it was a private conversation it doesn't matter. They wanted me to meet him to try to get him to be less anti-Semitic. And, and, and he is, it's Roger Walsh, and he really is anti-Semitic. So, so, and I say that very rarely. But anyhow, I met him and I was trying to help him understand that, that no, the positions he takes will be, are anti-Semitic to a lot of people, including even me. And I have, a, I have, a, I have a, the hot, you have to really be an anti-Semite for me to call you an anti-Semite, okay? And I said, that's, but you have to know who you are on the drama, right? You can't want Jews to approve of you, right? And take that position. Now you can choose to hate Jews. You can choose to change your position. And I gave him an example. I said, when you think about the civil rights movement, you had everything from rabid KKK people, right? To the most violent black separatists all along the way with LBJ somewhere and Southern senators somewhere and Malcolm somewhere and, 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 and MLK somewhere. And who are the people we remember? We remember Martin Luther King, why? Because he was completely aware, right, of the other side's fears, anxieties. He was fully aware of the full dimension of America and therefore argued not against America, but in light of America. There was a lot of things. That's Hillel, that's Hillel. It's very hard to do that. And by the way, to the left of him said, listen, you're doing this, it's too incremental. Meanwhile, black people are being killed. So that's the Black Panthers. And by the way, it's not clear because we're a system. If you don't have the Black Panthers, you don't have Malcolm X, it may not, you might not have MLK. In fact, MLK might not be listened to. In fact, we know that. Martin Luther King went into LBJ says, listen, I can't hold the people to, who are crazy to me to the mind left. I can't hold them back. So everyone is needed in the drama. But you have to know who you are. And if you care about polarization, if you don't care about polarization, that's a separate issue. This is on polarization, this session. If you care about polarization and you care about resolving the best shot of resolving conflicts of complex systems, and you also deep down believe we're all in this together. Because if you're a separatist, you don't believe we're all in it together. If you're a white militia person, you don't believe we're all in it together. If you're a person that says, Right? No matter what, you're white and da-da-da. You're not, we're not all in it together. That's okay, I get it. 
It's very, very new insight. It's less than 3,000 years old, the insight that we're all in it together. We're going to take one last question, uh, Rabbi Khan, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Rabbi Thank Kula, you, Hannah. So, Rabbi, just really quickly, um, <clears throat> we just had our clergy meeting this morning, and like lots of rabbis in the country, um, all of my friends at least, we have uh, experienced, especially in the last uh, couple of years, uh, members who have uh, disassociated from other members, people who have ended lifelong, if not decades-long relationships with friends over political issues. They won't include each other in dinner plans anymore, so on and so forth. And so we're doing a lot of pastoral counseling about that. So what we decided, because there are on both sides right now, people who really think next Wednesday, depending on who wins and who loses, that America apocalyptic. will be, that, that uh, and more than apocalyptic, <laughs> that the country will be destroyed. Um, um, we've decided to open up um, the sanctuary in the chapel for individuals. We did this during the high holidays to spend some time in front of the open ark or just in quiet meditation. Actually, thank you for the text because now I have some, we're going to put some signage up. What, what should we say? Um, when we're going to meet people, we'll be in the, in the rotunda, but as they go into the chapel or the sanctuary to have their 10 minutes with God in front of the ark or just to, just to kibitz in their own mind, what, what should we say? I, I, I need some pastoral counseling because I've said many things like you've said about tolerating ambiguities. Um, you know, the, the idea of the bowl is getting filled and cracked and how we can manage uh, the ideas that, and get, how we can contain each other, how we can, we can actually do both. We can contain each other and disagree with each other and not worry about the bowl cracking. But there are really people who really, I think, on a very deep level, think the, 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 the country will come to an end next week. When right. so I don't what believe would you that, say? so one what is I don't believe say? right now I think that 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 level the and I have friends I have people who have come to me they've been friends for forty years with other people and they don't talk to them anymore I believe yeah. that that is not a we're not capable right now we don't none of us have the skills to solve that in the heat of the battle collectively I agree. so I think that those are deep 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 that, that no one is not disagree no one who's friends with someone for forty years and doesn't and this is a this is a tough thing to say no one is friends with someone for forty years and then stops talking to them over a political debate over the politics. Except right? for right now. Right, but it's never about the politics thing. Of no course matter what not, they, of course no matter not. What they, so that it goes means, back to what you were saying about feeling rejected, feeling right. unfair, uh, being and By the way, feeling war, guilty. I think yeah. there's, a, there's a, I'm writing this for Biden right now, right? Because I'm advising, I'm trying to help, you know, there's a lot of, pre there, there is assumption he's gonna win, and there's a lot of pressure from day one about what he does. Mm. Okay, and of course the the of course my take is going to be, it's going to be a wandering in the desert take. Is it's a big job to wander together. It'd be a lot easier if you let the stragglers go. It'd be a lot easier if you eliminated the tribes that were, you know, problematic. It'd be a lot easier if you eliminated the Erev Rav, the the mixed multitude. It'd be a lot so. The fundamental decision right now that people have to make is do we want to wander together? There can be no union if the commitment to the union isn't bigger than the commitment to any particular policy, no matter how painful that is. And that is a decision. And by the way, John Quincy Adams has an amazing letter in 1836, he writes, I think it's 1836, an amazing letter 
in which he says, there will be times in this union where the disunited states, he calls it the disunited states, will be so serious and there will be such hate in the hearts of brothers. Brothers, mm-hmm. and I'll send you the letter, I'll send it to, I'll send it to Shmuley. So, so that it will be better for the United States to become disunited. We have been here before, right? The Jewish people have been, all peoples have been here before. We're here, we've been here before in our marriages. We've been here, and sometimes disuniting is the best thing to do, even though you will still have to deal with all those issues as a, as a it'll just, it'll reappear in smaller group because these are enduring machlokets. They're not about the policy, no matter how bad the policy is. They're not fundamentally about the policy. The policies are unbelievably distorted, damaging, dangerous manifestations of people's interior now grievances. Da, 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 right? And on all sides, by the way, on all sides. In fact, the liberal side, uh, given them, I assume more people are liberal. The most significant challenge for the liberal community will be that conservatives are a million times better regarding the issue of sacrifice than liberals. Liberals are a million times better on rights than they are on obligations. Conservatives, now, that doesn't mean they play it out in their lives, but it as, as takes on life, okay? And when obligation gets split from rights, you have entitlement, right? When authority gets split from freedom, right. you have authoritarianism or anarchy. When these things get split, and they're all split now, everything is split. And that doesn't mean your job is to heal that split. That's a choice. You may say, I don't want to, that is not who I want to be. I want to be Malcolm X in the drama. I want to be a social justice warrior. And I don't use that, dis- I hope you hear, I'm not using that disrespectfully, mm-hmm. right? I want to be a warrior for one side. By the way, we need soldiers too. It's who you want to be in the drama if the, it pains you so much that somehow, how the hell did it happen that we're not all in this together? How did it happen? That 6 million Jews in America, 14, 16 million Jews in the entire world, so hate each other now, so hate each other. And by the way, let's be clear. It is at the, ver- it is at the level of hate. Now I, I can make, I am to the left of Bibi Netanyahu, but I can make the Bibi Netanyahu Bennett argument as well as anybody on the right. Do you believe, do you love the people that you hate more than you hate them? Right. And that is a decision. That is not, I can't take you there as collective as a group. That everyone has to look, and it's painful. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to just disassociate and hate. It's very hard to love the other. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, Rabbi Kula. This, as always, as always, you challenge us. You challenge us all. I I hope folks will continue to think about this to look through all the sources. And please, you have my. I don't know if you have my email. I think it's at the bottom of that. Of that, I'm going to send you two other things. A page called "The Art of Living uh, and Leading in Polarizing Times" and something called uh, "Duality Diving." I have a bunch of these dualities that you'll be able to play with now. You say, oh my God, I'm more like that, not like that. I'm more like that, not like that. Oh, I'm more like that, not like that. Okay, like the ones that I did, freedom and fairness, those kinds of things, freedom and obligation, those kinds of things. So you can begin to feel, right, which one you like more reflexively go to. Because whatever you more reflexively go to, you need to make sure you have the other side also inside of you. And the so I'll, send, I'll send that to AJ. Jack, Adam's letter also, please. Yeah. Oh, and, and yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. And Mark Bisman, I know you, don't I? Yes, Mark Bisman is a rabbi for many yeah. years in this community. Oh, my yes. God. You know I me? know Mark for years and years and years. Oh, my God. There he is. Okay. I'm, oh, wow. <laughs> so thank you. And David Lip. Oh, my gosh. I know a lot of people here. Holy crow. <laughs> Just, oh, my God. Okay. Friends, we hope you'll, uh, you'll pick up the source sheet and, and learn through the whole thing. Continue email, these conversations. Shmuley, can you yes. forward the... Uh, both the oh yeah, he'll send it to us. And I'm going to send it to AJ right anybody now. Anybody who RSVP'd for this will receive it. Friends, our next speaker is Rabbi David Wolfie. Okay. Oh, I put him on the phone. About the other. And um, if you don't have a membership yet with VBM, we hope you'll pick one up to help support this work going. Thank you, Rabbi Thank Khan. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day, everyone. God bless. Bye-bye.